Welcome. You are listening to the Park Avenue Synagogue Podcast, and this is Rabbi Elliot Cosgrove. While it's better to hear it live, this is the place to catch the latest sermon, conversation, and select program. If you like what you're hearing or want to learn more about our community, check out PASYN.org. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to get a notification for our next episode. Enjoy and see you in shul. Hello and welcome back to Park Avenue Synagogue Podcasts, where we take national conversations, conversations of import to the Jewish community, but also conversations of import to our humanity into our membership, extending into our wider community. And this week, we have a conversation that's going to touch on all of these things. I first met Jonathan Eig in my Chicago days, um, back when I was a wee little assistant rabbi at Ansheim at Synagogue in Chicago. And Jonathan, I'm going to ask him about this, about his uh, meteoric rise to prominence in the Chicago Jewish community. But aside from that, he began his writing career at age 16, working for his hometown newspaper, the Rockland County Journal News. He went on to study journalism at Northwestern University and went on to work as a reporter for the New Orleans Time-Picayune, the Dallas Morning News, Chicago Magazine, and the Wall Street Journal. Jonathan is the best-selling author of six books, including his most recent, King, A Life, which the New York Times hailed as a monumental new biography of Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, his, he's written a lot of books. Um, there's one that's of particular interest to me that might come up in our conversations, but Jonathan's previous works include Ali, A Life, which won the Penn America Literary Award for a fine, and was a finalist for the Mark Linton History Prize. His works have been translated into more than a dozen languages. Um, he has done all sorts of things, appeared on the Today Show, NPR's Fresh Air, and The Daily Show, and this is most important appearance ever on Park Avenue Synagogue podcasts, though his greatest claim to fame, according to his parents, is that his name once appeared in a Jeopardy question, which was solved correctly for $200. Jonathan, welcome to Park Avenue Synagogue Podcasts. Thank you, Rabbi. You were never a wee little rabbi in Chicago. You were a force to be reckoned with. Uh, you, you are very kind. And I, I remember those early days when I was doing the overflow service in a chapel. And, and now look at me. I'm, I'm a congregational rabbi, and you are the author of an extraordinary new volume, which is, is on my summer reading list. I've, I've been dipping into it throughout the summer, King a Life, um, a, a, a new biography of Martin Luther King Jr. of blessed memory. Um, Jonathan Mazeltov on the achievement. It has received rave reviews um, across the country and numerous publications. What an honor it is to have you here with chutzpah. Let me ask you the obvious question. Does the world really need another biography of Martin Luther King Jr.? Why write this book um, in the first place? Well, with chutzpah, I did think that we needed another book. You know, 
uh, in the course of the last 50 years or so, um, we've turned King into a national holiday and a monument and a postage stamp. And we've forgotten about his humanity. We've forgotten about his his religiosity. We've forgotten about his real courage. We've forgotten about his flaws. And I felt like we needed a more intimate portrait of King. Um, and we've also forgotten how radical he was. We've forgotten how his Christianity led him to a kind of uh, activism that some people uh, had trouble with. You know, he was unpopular at the time of his death. Even the last three or four years of his life, he suffered tremendously uh, from the uh, in, in the pop, in the popularity polls in America and felt like uh, people weren't listening to him anymore. Um, if you can imagine how frustrating that would be for a uh, a religious leader. Right. He he would have been uh, what around ninety four. He was born in twenty nine, right? If he if he were still still alive yeah. today. Um. And and what? That's right. His older sister just passed away. Oh really? Okay. Um. So tell me. Um. Is this? Uh. You know, I, I love the archival work. That's my background. Um. When I was writing my, my dissertation, is, is there were there new materials? Were there interviews that had never been accessed? Just tell me a little bit about the writing process. Um, were there things that have come to light or archives that are open now that maybe at another point were not open? That this is 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 there new material here, or is it just that you you're telling the story through new eyes? There's so much new material. First of all, uh, you know, I, re I recognize that there were still dozens of people, maybe hundreds of people alive who knew King and knew him well, including his older sister, including, you know, John Lewis at the time and Dick Gregory and Harry Belafonte. All these people who really knew King very well were still around. And I, I hurried to interview them. I interviewed, you know, more than 200 people. But at the same time, there was a lot of new archival material. The FBI was wiretapping King's phones, his home, his office, his friends, and those transcripts are now available, as well as um, friends of King's who have left their papers behind. And King himself had a personal archivist, a uh, someone who worked for the SCLC, King's organization, and he left behind thousands of papers that nobody had seen before I um, opened those boxes. They were up at, at the Schomburg Library in Harlem. So um, I found a lot of new material to work with, as well as people who knew King who I could interview. So what was like your your Indiana Jones, your archival moment? Was was there a moment that you can share with with the listeners that you said, oh my, look at this letter, look at this diary entry, look at this FBI file. This is this is gonna tell the King's story in a fundamentally or or, or maybe just a tidbit that is just who knew that, you know. Any 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 moment of real research excitement? Yeah, there were many. I mean, first of all, I found a tape that Coretta made when she was working on her memoir in 1968, just months after her husband's assassination. She began working with a ghostwriter and the ghostwriter interviewed Coretta on tape. And I found those tapes. Nobody had listened to them before. But I think the biggest moment for me was um, discovering that President Johnson kept um, a lot of FBI materials in his private safe in his office, and they were not in the LBJ library files under President Johnson. They were in the, in the files marked for his personal secretary. So another historian said to me, have you thought about checking the files belonging to LBJ's private personal secretary, Mildred Stiegel? And when I went there, I found hundreds of pages of materials where J. Edgar Hoover was writing directly to LBJ strictly about Martin Luther King Jr. And it really revealed the level, 
not just of Hoover's obsession with King, but with LBJ's obsession with King. And I think that was a really important discovery because it, uh, you know, we tend to just blame it, um, the FBI for the way King was treated, um, the surveillance, the uh, attack, the attempt to um, intimidate, to discourage his activity, to break up the civil rights movement. But it wasn't just LBJ. Uh, there were others complicit in that campaign, including um, including LBJ. I say, I'm sorry, I misspoke. It wasn't just J. Edgar Hoover. It was LBJ and others as well. Right. And LBJ had grown frustrated with King. Or can you offer some color on uh, on on some of that relationship? It was complicated. King's relationship with both of the presidents that he engaged with were complicated. You know, JFK was never moving fast enough for him. Um, he felt like JFK owed the black community something for his for their support in his in the election. And 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 Kennedy was very reluctant to get involved in, in proposing civil rights legislation until King really held his feet to the fire. And then with LBJ, I think you could argue that the relationship between MLK and LBJ is one of the greatest, maybe the greatest relationship between a president and an activist. I mean, look at how much they accomplish. And yet um, King is constantly having to push LBJ and LBJ is is going behind King's back and and conspiring with the FBI to try to disrupt the civil rights movement, to damage King's reputation. Uh, LBJ is, is suggesting that they leak the transcripts, they leak the audio from King's hotel rooms to the media. So it's interesting because I think King is sometimes accused of being naive, that he doesn't understand politics. And he's thinking like a, like a, like a preacher. Um, he's thinking about the moral right thing to do not, and not what um, is going to play politically. And he never once you know, asks for political favors, even though you know, LBJ is counting on him to for his help in, in supporting legislation. And it, in some ways, I think it, it just shows uh, this great disconnect between the activist and the politician. All right. And I realize we're taking his life a bit out of order, but towards the end of his life, the, the question was whether or not, and, and please correct me if I'm mistaken on this, whether or not um, King would pivot um, from civil rights uh, to Vietnam. And the famous uh, sermon, if I'm not mistaken, at Riverside Church, where he um, really um, put all his cards on the table, um, much to the, you know, and, and that, was, that was an inflection point that, um, that he, he could have gone either way and not without consequence to his relationship to the administration. Do I have the, the contours of that right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, a lot of King's closest friends and advisors were saying, don't speak out on Vietnam. Don't attack racism in the North. You know, um, stick to where we're most effective. Stick to voting rights. Um, stick to the South. If we do that, we can really tilt the balance of power. We can get more of, of our candidates elected to office. We can have more impact in Congress and state houses. But by going North and and talking about racism in Chicago and in New York, you're going to cost us a lot of supporters. By speaking out on the Vietnam War, which was popular at the time, you're going to distract from our cause and you're going to make an enemy of LBJ. And King insisted on doing those things because he felt like they were the morally right things to do because they, because God and the Bible spoke to him and and in a way that made it impossible for him to ignore his beliefs. And in that speech that you referenced at, at Riverside Church, um, uh, on April 4th, 1967, he lays it all out and says, you know, these are the things he's believed all along and they are rooted in his religious faith and he can't pick and choose. He can't 
call for an end of the violence on the streets of Los Angeles or the streets of Detroit and not address the fact that the American government is the greatest purveyor of violence on earth in Vietnam. So he was, again, taking unpopular stances because he thought that's what his faith compelled him to do. Right. Now, let's uh, go back uh, in time now. We're sort of at the end of his life and not by design, but uh, that's where we started. So um, his religious beliefs and, you know, what his influences were, whether they were proximate people he knew directly or whether it was uh, uh, Gandhi or uh, other Protestant theologians or otherwise uh, with whom he was well familiar, um, the, the or source for uh, King's uh, civil rights vision, um, can, can you, just in terms of its intellectual history, um, how do you trace King's pedigree? What did you discover? His, his well, biggest influences? Well, his biggest influence is probably the black social gospel, which is a little bit different from the white social gospel in that it's really rooted in not just um, changing souls, saving souls, but in saving society and reforming uh, the, the nation and in, in, in making democracy inclusive. And it's it comes from the fact that, you know, his ancestors were enslaved and they were given Christianity as part of the package of enslavement. And yet they used it as a tool for liberation. They argued that the if, if the Bible is true, if, if you accept the words in the Bible, you must believe that all people are created equal and you must believe that slavery is wrong and that Jim Crow laws are wrong and that there's a requirement then to fight for change, that there's a requirement to fulfill the words of the Bible and to work with God in making the universe uh, a, a whole place and to... Um, to, to make that a part of the of the of the religious mission and 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 belief and and that's really what guides him. So he grows up. His father's a preacher. His grandfather's a preacher, and he grows up in this community. Um, you know, he goes to Morehouse College where um, preachers are running the school, and they're all saying the same thing: that you know, religion, the church, this organization that comes with the church, can be a great tool for lifting people up from this uh, despair, from this mistreatment, and finding a better way forward. Right. Was there uh, a moment in your research, Jonathan, uh, and we're talking to Jonathan Eig, the author of King, A Life, where you say, well, he, he could have gone the other way. He could have become a little league coach or a doctor or, you know, started his own company or whatever. Was there sort of a, a moment in his own biography that uh, King um, went into, obviously, Rosa Parks and, and, uh, and 1955? I mean, he was already ensconced in his pulpit, but that, was there a moment that, of a counterfactual that you say, oh, he could have grown up to, to be a dentist? Yeah, he actually in college thought about being a doctor or a lawyer, um, I think part of it was just not wanting to be the same as his father. Uh, but then I think it's really important to note that even when he gets into the, the pulpit and he's working in Montgomery, uh, the bus boycotts begin. When they call him and ask if he'll get involved in the protest movement, in the boycott, his initial reaction is, I'll think about it. I'm not sure. I'm busy. I got a new baby at home. I got this new congregation I'm getting to know. Mm -hmm. And he just said no to the NAACP when they asked him to serve on the Alabama uh, board. 
And he was not sure he wanted to be a leader. He want, really thought that he was going to preach for a few years and then maybe he would move into a, a faculty position at a university. He was not looking to be a civil rights leader, an activist, um, but he was called and he felt like God spoke to him. He said, actually, literally, he heard God speak to him one night after his home had been bombed and he was debating whether this was the right thing to do. Should he, should he give his life over to this cause, knowing that he was putting himself and his family at risk? And he said, God actually spoke to him. He heard the word saying, you know, um, follow me, um, trust me. I, I, you know, this is what he is. He believed God expected him to do. Right. I remember paying a visit to his home and it's very moving to see that very place. He was having a cup of coffee and believed uh, that he had this calling uh, to, to play the role he ultimately did. Um, tell me um, your book. Uh, and you, you draw on the, as you yourself say, the human elements of King's life. Um, uh, you know, he was a man of flesh and blood. Uh, there's a question of uh, his um, uh, academic journey, um, uh, the, the originality of, um, you know, some statements within his own writing um, or whether they were taken from others. Um, the question of his own personal life and um, his his flawed relationship with monogamy um, are there uh, what 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 did you discover and and how does that impact uh, our relationship to this to the heroic king to realize there's also a deeply flawed king that's a great question and you know I knew going in that King had plagiarized his dissertation at Boston University. Yeah, I didn't know that he also plagiarized this high school speech that he won a, uh, finished third in a, in a statewide competition. So, um, and I knew that he had been unfaithful to Coretta. Uh, that had been reported before. But I think what was different for me was, first of all, this is the first book that really explores the, some of those things in depth. Um, and it explores the fact that he suffered from issues of mental health, that he was hospitalized numerous times for what he called exhaustion. But Coretta referred to it as depression and Jesse Jackson referred to it as, you know, clinical depression. And I think that I, I was nervous about putting this stuff in the book. I was nervous about how people would react to, you know, a really, you know, heroic, iconic, um, in some, for some people, a saintly figure. Um, certainly, you know, someone we consider a prophet. How would people deal with the fact that, that he had these flaws and that and, and reading it, you know, in vivid terms? You know, I tried not to overdo it. I tried to keep it to a minimum, really, but I wanted to be honest. So I have transcripts of him on the phone talking to these other women, you know, flirting with them. And the FBI was recording these calls. And I, I, I quote from them and I want readers to understand just how in a way it shows how, how lonely he was at that time. Um, but also shows some of his weakness. And I've been really pleasantly surprised that the response to this from readers has been really kind and loving and empathetic that people I think can identify more with King when they see him as a human figure, uh, when they see him with flaws, they, they can relate to him better. And I think that his, his courage is, is accentuated by that. It stands in contrast because, um, you know, it would have been easier for him to give it all up and just to um, give up the, the scrutiny, the attention, that, uh, the pressure that he was under, um, especially given how he was suffering, but he never did. You know, he kept mar marching forward. Right. But surely it can't all be rainbows and ponies. I mean, King is a, you know, whoever is writing about King is not just writing about King, but is writing about justice in our own time. 
um, is, you know, to, to, to show the flaws of a hero is, is, is no, no small thing in today's, uh, you know, media moment. Uh, No, you're right. And um, I, I think that, it's important though to acknowledge those flaws and you know if if i want people to believe all of the great things that i write about king uh then i have to be honest and include some of the things that were not so great um but as i said i think that um you know readers have 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 related to him in a different way as a result of that i think that they are um they're showing a, a, an open mind uh, the impression i get from the people i've talked to since the book came out right. so um so i'm a rabbi you're a jewish guy Let's talk about his relationship to Jews for the last few minutes we have here, because by a certain telling, and I send my kids to a school called the Heschel School, uh, there was this sacred and early relationship formed between Heschel, Abraham Joshua Heschel, and Martin Luther King at the conference that actually took place in Chicago. I think it was 63, maybe 64, January on race and religion. They struck up a friendship. They were lifelong friends. Heschel was down. I mean, that they uh, worked closely together, marched together in Selma, et cetera, et cetera. Um, skimming through your index, um, I don't see the word Heschel anywhere in the book. So is this just a story that Jews tell themselves that Heschel and King marched down, or, or even if I were to expand the the lens even more, even 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 wider, sort of, to understand the nature of King's relationship with the Jewish community. Uh, n- no, I first of all, I thought Heschel was in the book. I'll have to double check on that because now I'm embarrassed. But um, you know, his relationship with the Jewish community and with Heschel was very important. Um, and I had to leave out some things that were important. I couldn't get everything in the book. Uh, but I will say that by the time oh, King no, met- it is, it is, it is, it, it it's. It's not prominent, but it is. Uh, just, right, uh, just double checked. All right, thank you. But it, um, it's, you had me, it, uh, yeah. It, it I, is I know there. I don't spend a lot of attention on Heschel. And I actually had uh, somebody accuse me of of um, intentionally slighting the Jews uh, in this book, which uh, maybe subconsciously I did. Maybe I was I was nervous about being accused of overdoing it on the Jewish content, and I may have overreacted to that. But um, I think it's important that to, to note that that Heschel and many members of the Jewish community and many rabbis responded to King's call, came and joined him for the march in Selma, supported him throughout, uh, raised a lot of money, invited him to, to come to the North and speak at their synagogues. And King really did take inspiration from them. And, and Heschel and other rabbis took great inspiration from King. But I would also point out that by 1963, when he meets Heschel, when he meets Heschel, King is pretty fully formed. And the most important Jewish advisor in his life was Stanley Levison, who King met in 1956 when Levison, a former Communist Party member, uh, decided that he was going to help King take his movement national. And, and he and Bayard Rustin, Levison and Bayard Rustin, helped King devise a plan to build the SCLC and to take the civil rights movement from Montgomery across the country. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and King and Levison were soulmates. Levison was his, by far his, his closest white friend. And they spent many, many hours late into the night talking theology. Now, Levison said he didn't believe in God, though he was born and raised a Jew. Um, and King would argue with him that, of course, you believe in God. Uh, you're just denying it, but you're living the life of a man who believes in God. So they would have these great theological discussions 
Um, but uh, that's not to minimize the the role or the importance of the rabbis, including you know Rabbi Heschel, who, by the way, I think it's Heschel who said that um, the future of America may depend on the vision of Martin Luther King Jr. Yeah, yeah. Um, they, you know, as the Jews tell it. You know, it, it was a key relationship for both men throughout their lives, but there's clearly uh, an agenda there. Um, and as one of my teachers, you know, my my, my teacher, Rabbi Siegel, um, and, and your rabbi, I think he has a picture of King and Heschel marching in Selma on his office. And what, what beautiful as that moment is, uh, it begs the question of what are the new photographs, right? Where where do black Jewish relations stand today, or are we just drawing on the the sort of nostalgia of the past? And I think that's a, a charge to my generation um, to 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 build those relationships um, of, of meaning on common cause. Yeah, I agree, and it's a, it was a challenge then too because while King was working with these rabbis, um, many of their congregations were leaving the cities and moving to the suburbs um, as part of the white flight. So um, even while Northern whites were supporting the civil rights movement, they were not exactly walking the walk back home at their home congregations. And that's, you know, an issue that um, my parents' generation um, is still, you know, is still reflecting on, I think. Yeah. So, Jonathan, um, I, I, I get rabbinic uh, prerogative for one question here. Uh, well, I guess I can ask any question I want. And you've been such a gracious host. <laughs> and I wish you mazal tov on your book. Uh, King a life, and and if I look at all the other books written by Jonathan Eig, you have a book Ali a life, you have a book on Capone, you have a book on Jackie Robinson, you have a book on Lou Gehrig, um, and you could say you have this thing for these great men. Maybe there'll be a book on a woman that you write, but um, but then there's a book called The Birth of the Pill: How Four Crusaders Reinvented Sex and launched a revolution. Um, how does that book fit into the oeuvre of Jonathan Eig? Well, I think they fit in that most of my books are about people standing up to authority, um, rebels, people who are committed to changing the world. And uh, the, the birth control book actually goes back to this wee little rabbi I heard in Chicago once a long time ago, Rabbi uh, Elliot Cosgrove, um, who was giving a sermon at the High Holidays um, talking about how we are all responsible to act as partners with God in the creation of the universe. And he talked about the various inventions uh, made by man that have shaped, made by man and woman that have shaped the world. And he mentioned, uh, this wee little rabbi, uh, the invention of the birth control pill. And uh, when the holidays were over, I reflected on that. And it occurred to me that if the birth of the, if the birth control pill was such an important invention, why don't I know who invented it? Um, and I looked it up to see who invented it. And it turned out that it was this Jewish biologist, Gregory Pincus, who had been denied tenure from Harvard, was working out of his garage when a woman named Margaret Sanger came to him and said, I want a birth control pill. And she came up with the money to do it. They invented the pill completely on their own underground with no university support, no corporate support. And um, it's just this fabulous story of underdogs fulfilling the uh, the, the demand, the request of that wee little rabbi who said that we must be partners with God in shaping the universe. Well, if, if I have a footnote in your life, Jonathan, um, the fact that 
you never know uh, who's listening and where a sermon can go. So um, it is um, such a joy um, to be in dialogue with you on your newest book, Please God. Um, may your distinguished career only grow uh, and your writing continue. Um, your book, King, A Life by Jonathan Eig, a fabulous uh, look, a new look um, at the life and legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. Congratulations, Jonathan, and thank you for being on Park Avenue Podcasts. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you for listening to the Park Avenue Synagogue Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more about our community, check out PASYN.org. See you in shul. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.